0: Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Let's go to Matthew 633. This is going to be our our theme. This is Matthew recounting Jesus' words. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added. To you. I want you to notice, first of all, that, that that's a command. When it says seek, that, that word there, the, the Greek word there, is in the active voice and an imperative mood, which basically means it's a command to you. It's not something somebody does for you, it's something that you are commanded to do for yourself. You are to seek. But it, But it says when you do that, when you seek the kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Well, what things is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the rest of Matthew chapter 6. Verses 1 through 4 in Matthew 6, it talks about right giving. What is the motive for our giving? And and when you read that, and I'm going to summarize all of this, giving has to be an act of mercy from our hearts. We don't give to get. We don't give for any other reason than we have, and it's talking about alms to, to the poor, even giving to to the church, giving to God, giving of your first fruits, giving of your tithe. That the root of that has to be a, a sense of mercy. And I want to partner. I want to alleviate need. I want to help people. It can never be from a selfish, and, and basically when you read that, the the, the counter example there is somebody who is calling their attention to themselves. I'm going to build a wing on a hospital, but my name has to be on that. Would to God that we, we don't want glory out of our giving. It won't count. But notice verse 4, it says that the, the Father sees in secret and He will reward openly. I love the, the little Greek word there for openly. It means He will, he will uh, make it come to light. It's part of the theme we're going to see here is The light. God is always shining light on stuff, because light dispels darkness. But if we give for the right motives, God will reward openly. That's why He said in verse 13, all these things will be added to you. He's not opposed to you having things. Not opposed to blessing you. But He, he, he is opposed to you having things that control you. Amen. Verse 5 through 14, he talks about right praying. Our praying, again, it's not to be, and I'm not saying that we don't do public prayers. We do that. The men gather on Saturday morning. We pray. We pray publicly. We pray together. But what is your motive for praying? If your motive for praying is not to, to bring heaven to meet a need in somebody's life, then your motive is wrong and it counts for nothing. In particular, if your, if your motive is to let everybody know how great a prayer you are. Would to God that our pride doesn't get, get that big. Because if we do that, then, then it doesn't count. But if we do, if our prayers are private and sincere, then the same thing in verse 6. It says, what the Father sees in secret, He will reward openly. And there's a theme going on here, verse 15 through 18, talking about fasting. I know now I'm really meddling. He's saying, when you fast, don't do it for show. In the ancient world, when people would fast, they'd take ashes sometimes and put it on their their cheeks to make their cheeks look a little hollow. And they would, would just, you know, oh, I've been fasting for so many days. I've known people that, you know, when you, you, could, you know they're losing weight and, and you, it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with telling people that you're on a fast, but they will tell you, well, I'm not just fasting. I'm on a 40-day fast. Well, whoop-de-doo. Do Moses' fast. He fasted for 40 days. He didn't eat or drink. Try that one if you're, you're so hot. We'll be, we'll be burying you unless you're in the direct presence of God but it's not about you fasting is not about you fasting is about telling your flesh shut up buster that's all it does it gets your flesh under control it doesn't make you more holy it doesn't make you more righteous all it does is tell your flesh it your flesh it is time that you shut up and i'm not going to feed you until you get quiet but again if you do it for the right reasons verse 18 the father that sees in secret will reward you openly. It's all about motive. And then we get to verse 19 through 21. This is talking about our true treasure. And, and I've taught on this verse before here. Your heart will always follow your treasure. And I've heard it say, be, said before, if you, have a, if you put your heart in an area, your treasure will follow that. That's backwards. Your heart follows your treasure. Now, this is specifically talking about treasure because I'll be honest with you. When I hear the word treasure, I have one vision in my head. I see a pirate's chest, and when you open it, there's gold, there's silver, and there's diamonds and rubies and lots of, you know, and you just kind of get happy because you know life's going to be easy when it comes to paying bills from now on. That's included here, but but the principle here is even more more real what you treasure your heart is there and it's not just talking about money but we'll get into that a little a little bit more and then verses 22 through 24 it's talking about your vision how you see is the light of your eye true light or is the light light of your eye darkness because if it's darkness, it's really bad. He's talking about, about your vision. Don't allow your vision to become distorted. And, and in, in the essence, in verse 24, he's talking about trying to serve two masters. God and money. Those two compete a lot. Nothing wrong with money. Money's not evil. But the love of money is evil. <clears throat> and that, I, if I'm not mistaken, that love there is called it's agape love. It's, it's, it's love that you put into something. It's loving money more than God. That will get you in trouble. And then the last part, verse 25 through 34, it's basically God saying, quit worrying. You can't add one fraction of an inch to your height. How do you think you're going to control anything else in your life? Now, it does not mean that we don't have things to do, that we we can't do things correctly or incorrectly. But it does mean you do what you know to do and leave the rest to God and quit worrying about it. I've used the example, Mark 16 says, lay hands on the sick. It does not say, lay hands on the sick and cause them to recover by your great faith. It just says, lay hands, leave the healing to Jesus. I don't have I don't have any power to heal people and yet I boldly stand up here at times and in my own private time of prayer and command healing to people's bodies why because I have the word on it I have authority to do that as a Christian not as a pastor as a Christian I have authority to take a, to take authority and counterman what the devil's doing in someone's body I have the greatest authority in my own body. I have second greatest authority in my wife's body. I have the, the third greatest authority is, is people that, that I'm your pastor, or my kid, like probably my children and my grandchildren would come before that. And then then the pastor, and then just people at large. And the farther you get away, you still have authority over the devil, but people can undo that real quick. I've said it before. You can bind the devil and he will be bound absolutely. You cannot bind people. That's witchcraft. Don't you ever try to get over there and, and, and cause someone to do something through your prayers. That'll get you in trouble real fast. We bind the enemy. He is our enemy. People are not our enemies, so we cannot bind them. We can loose them. We do have authority to loose them from bonds especially, Paul says it in, in the letter to the Corinthians, we can strip the blinders off their eyes so they can see the light. But keep in mind, that's one a lot of times you're going to have to pray over and over again because the second they get a glimpse of that light, they're going to throw the blinders right back on. Because they did it to Moses. When Moses came down off the mountain, they said, Moses, put a, put a, a mask over your face. We can't stand the glory coming off you. And when Jesus resurrected, the glory shone. And they said, well, we can't, put a, we can't put a mask on Jesus and hide the glory of Jesus. So we're putting a guard over our own face and I'm blinding my own eyes because I don't want to see the light. And it's sad, but you read the first chapter of John, it says people love the darkness rather than the light. But that's a spiritual deception. And there again, we have to pray for that. We have to pray to break that off of people. Amen? Our battles primarily... Prayer and declaring the word. but then we come back to Matthew 6:33. We are to seek. Literally that word means it, it means to produce, pursue something or explore something. I look at it, it's a quest. It's a lifelong quest. Jesus says, "I want you to seek my kingdom for the rest of your life. You keep coming after me. You keep exploring. What my kingdom is. We, I said it last week. Read a couple of different verses. Jesus, or in, in the Bible, it wasn't, these were Old Testament verses. It said, um, if you seek, I will, I will be found by those that seek me. Seek me with all your heart and I will be found. God's, God has done everything he's going to do. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's resting until Jesus says, Come get, go get your church. Go get your bride. When he says that, Jesus will get up. The only other time in the the, um, Bible that I see that Jesus, since the uh, ascension, that I see Jesus is not sitting on the throne was when they stoned Stephen. I I think Jesus, I think the father had to restrain him because they were killing one of his kids. And I think Jesus got up and, and his first inclination was, I'm going down there and take care of them folk. And the father said, wait a minute. <laughs> now, that's a metaphor, okay? There's no division in the Godhead. But I'm just saying, Jesus gets upset when his children are harmed. He said it to Paul on the Damascus Road. Why are you persecuting me? Amen? But, but when it says first, this means it's, it's, it can have two different meanings. It could be the first of an event. So the Greek word pro... And I, I thought of immediately, my father is my progenitor. It means he's the first of my generation. And I realized he had a father, and his father had a father. But in my family, my father was, was the first. He was the first of my generation. That's what progenitor means. Well, he says, first of all, very first thing on our list, but it also means the highest priority. My highest priority is to seek the kingdom. Why? Well, because, go, let's go back to Matthew um, six twenty one, the very last part of it. We read it again. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When he says this has to be your highest priority, Jesus is saying, it's another way of saying, you have to treasure my kingdom. This has to be something that you would seek out. If I gave you, and there are people that fall for this, but let's say I gave you a genuine map that would lead you to a pirate's treasure. A chest, big chest full of gold, silver, and and, and precious stones. Believe me, you pursue it. If you knew it to be real, you would go after it because it could change your financial life. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is something that you have to treasure. And remember, it's, it's not something that we just treasure when everything's just hunky-dory, man. The world is just, you know, it's great. Everything's great. How are you? Wonderful. I feel good. I'm rested. I'm healthy. Everything's in line. I got money. I got fame. I got it all. No, <clears throat> let me give you two verses and we're, we're just going to touch them. Deuteronomy 4.29, it says, From there, from where? That's when they were in captivity. He's telling them, if you do these things, you are going to go into captivity. He said, from there, from that place of captivity, kept, easy for me to say, from that place of captivity, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Reminds me of when, when they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He said, oh, that's simple. That's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And the second's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason the second is like it, because if you can't love the man that you see, you can't love a God that you don't see. Jeremiah 29, 13. Again, Jeremiah is talking to Israel when they are in or going into captivity. He says, you will... see." And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You only search for something with all your heart. When you commit your entire life to it, you are treasuring that thing. Otherwise, why would you put in the effort? Amen? We only really work hard. I, 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 I'm just confession time. I was the world's worst student. I am. Now my wife and my daughter and my son they were students. My son went to Purdue to be an engineer. His first semester we'd call Ryan how you doing? Oh great, I got to play basketball five times today. And I heard that day after day after day after day and I started being concerned and I started questioning him on things until finally Gina pulled me up short and said, "John, you're not you're not encouraging anymore, you're nagging." So quit. And I did. And about three fourths of the way through the semester, we got this phone call with our son in tears. Oh, dad, I'm failing. It's like, well, yeah, you're not studying enough. So he got to take over a few classes. But I'm telling you, by the time his nickname became Grinder, you know why? Because he would, towards the end of his college career, he was spending eight to 10 hours a day, seven days a week, studying. Because he wanted that engineering degree. He treasured that thing. He had set himself, I'm getting it. And believe me, it ain't easy. He took five levels of calculus. I tried one, I was lost. Five different levels. How did he do it? He ground His way. He wanted it. He he could taste it. He wanted it. He treasured it, so He sought it with all of His heart. It became His only focus was get these classes, pass them, and get that degree and go out and, and, and do that work. That's what Jesus is saying. This is what you have to pursue. But He's saying, what do you pursue? You're pursuing the kingdom of God. Not just God, but the kingdom of God. Now, when we think of kingdoms, I think of, you know, a kingdom. France, Great Britain, United States, that's a kingdom. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not an actual place. But literally, if you look that word up, it's the authority and the rule. The root of that word is to walk something out. So when he says that, that I want you to pursue the kingdom of God, he's saying I want you to pursue and, and treasure walking around like a king. Walking around with power and authority that God gave you. Not your power and authority, because man, you, that's, you're, you're going to get defeated every time. But the power and the authority that Jesus gave us. And my first question is, wonderful, how do I do that? First first came to me, Ephesians 5, 1. Be imitators of God as dear children. New Living Translation, I love it. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. That word imitate, it's literally um, imitasis, I think is how you pronounce it. My Greek's horrible but it means to replicate or to reproduce. You look at God and you are to do everything you see God doing. Like, well, really? I have that authority? I can do that? John, the apostle that Jesus loved, 1 John 4, 17, said, love has been perfected among us in this. Remember, you can't love God if you can't love your brother. So, I'm supposed to walk around with authority and power, which primarily means I'm going to walk in in love towards my fellow man. How do I do that, or why should I do that? Love has been perfected among us in this that we have boldness in the day of judgment. I can boldly say, I deserve to be here. Well, why? What'd you do? I depended on the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice. That'll give you boldness. That's like when, when you were little. And, and, you know, a bully came around, and you run behind Dad's leg. And you're hiding behind Dad's leg, but every once in a while you poke your head around, stick your tongue out at him. What are you going to do now, buster? Big boy, come whip me, because you have to go through my daddy. That's where my boldness comes through. i got a big dad. But notice the last part of that verse. We have boldness. Why? Because as He is, as Jesus is right now, so are we in this world. And that's not the Greek word G, where we get geology. It's not talking about the planet. It's, talk, it's the Greek word cosmos, which is talking about the world system. This fouled up, sin-soaked system that Satan brought into the into the universe when he fell. We are to be in that system just as Jesus is and walk just like he walked when he was here on the earth. Now, you got that takes some boldness. But we can do it. We, do you realize that we stand in the exact same Old Testament offices that Jesus stand, stood in? Now, in, in the new covenant, we have a five fold ministry apostle, prophet, uh, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. And I know that's not the order of the Bible puts them in, but I can never remember them all. In the Old Testament, there were only three offices that got anointed. There was priest, there was king, and there was prophet. Revelation, twice, Revelation 1.6 and Revelation 5.10, both says he has made us kings and priests. We are kings and we are priests. We have that same anointing. Why? Because we have Jesus living on the inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit of God residing on the inside of us. And He stood in the office of a priest and a king. Therefore, we have that same Old Testament anointing on the inside of us. But what about a prophet? I'm not out proclaiming future events. Well, that is what the Old Testament prophet did. And there is a New Testament prophet but it's interesting. That's why I, I love that, that song we sang, You Bring Light into Darkness. The, the Greek word there for prophet is, is the, and I'll, I have to look or I'll mispronounce it, and I'll probably still mispronounce it. It's prophetas, prophetase. It's two words. Pro means before. We saw that up there in, in, um, when it says seek first. But then the second word is pheme. This is what it, and I'll get into the, the definition here in a minute. But keep this in mind when we're talking about prophets. John 16, 13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, that's talking about the Holy Spirit who is already in, on the inside of us. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit in there. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. King James says he will show you things to come. That's the office of the Old Testament prophet. It is primarily for my life. He will show me what's coming in my life. He will show me my calling. He will show me what, what he's called me to do today, tomorrow, next week, however far out he needs to, to show me. But, but nothing should, should um, catch me completely by surprise. Isaiah says, um 4610 says that God declares the ending from the, the end from the beginning. And He's not above sharing that knowledge with me. He wants me to know what's coming in my life so I can prepare it. But how does He do that? How does He make me a prophet? Well, the pro means before, but the female, it means literally to speak or to say something. So being a prophet means you're supposed to speak. But if you track that, that word down, the root of that word is the word phos, which means light. So when you for me what that says is that I am to be I am to in every situation, primarily in my own life but also in other people's lives, I am to bring first light to something, to a situation or to a person by speaking into their life. I'm bringing light. Jesus, we we said it, He brings light into darkness. How does He bring light into our world? Through us. We stand in that Old Testament prophet's ministry and we are to bring light into the world. And we do it primarily, remember the verse we we read over in Peter, said that we have the prophetic word, the light-bearing word, made more sure. He gave us this light-bearing word so that we could speak it, speak it over our own lives, but speak it into other people's lives so that we bring light into their situation. That is exactly what Jesus did. When He turned the water into wine, that was a display of, of, um, of His the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus had done no miracles up until then. He was the second person of the Godhead from conception all the way up to the baptism of of John. And no miracles. None. Why? Because He hadn't been anointed by the Holy Spirit to walk as a man. That was His calling. To walk as a perfect man. He was called in several places in the New Testament. The second Adam, he was the person, first per, or second person of the Godhead, but he laid all of those privileges aside and walked as a human being made in the same image as the first Adam, but he listened to the Holy Spirit. A couple of places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, it says, I only say what I hear the Father say. I only do what I see the Father do. He did not do things on His own initiative. Nothing. He listened to what God told him, the Father told him, and the Spirit anointed what He said and what He did because it was the Father's Word. He was not manifesting His own glory. He was manifesting the glory of the Father through the Holy Spirit. That's why He had no miracles before then. And it's why he had to be very careful. You know, when he spoke to, to Lazarus, he called him. He didn't just say, come forth. He said, Lazarus, come forth. When, when uh, at, the, at the garden tomb, when, when they said, you know, are you this Jesus? Judas had already kissed him on the cheek. So they knew it, but they're, 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 these are guards. These are military men. I'm, I'm double-checking everything. Are you he? And he said, I am. And when he said, I am, he used the word for Yahweh. And when he did, every one of those soldiers fell flat. They all knocked, They were all knocked on their rear ends by his words. But if there's a curious little verse, if you read just past that a little bit, it says in a few minutes that this young man came through and he had no clothes. He just had a cloth. Where did that happen? The Garden of Gethsemane was very close to the tombs. And tradition tells us that that was John Mark. The later John Mark in in the book of Acts that that Paul got upset with when he went home and he and and, um, uh, Barnabas split over later on. They had the first first church split. Barnabas said, John Mark will, will work out this time. And Paul said, no he won't and I'm not taking him. And Barnabas said, well, fine, go without him. But you're going out with me or without me. And so Paul took Silas. I think it was Silas. Went off. That church history tells us that that was John Mark. When Jesus said, I am, that word had so much power that he raised him from the dead by accident. The reason he was naked—he was in there. He was in the tomb with his burial cloth on. They don't—they don't bury you fully dressed. You just had a cloth over you. And suddenly he woke up and he's in a tomb and all he's got to keep between him and Mother Nature is a cloth. So he wrapped up in it, and he didn't know what was going on. He walks out in the middle of this arrest scene, and somebody said, "What are you doing here? Are you one of his?" And he got a little frightened. Well, I'd be a little frightened if I woke up in a tomb. That would—that would, that would kind of you know twist your day and then he ran off and they grabbed his cloth and he just ran off in his birthday suit that's how powerful god's word is but he's given us this same anointing he 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 says we are to um Excuse me. John 5, 19, I just quoted it a minute ago. He, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. When it says He can do nothing, it means because he, he chose that. He chose to submit Himself to the Father. But what He sees the Father do, for whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. I love the Phillips translation of that says, Jesus said to them, I assure you that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. What the Son does is always modeled on what the Father does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything, and that he does himself imitate. He's an imitator. He's imitating what he sees the Father do. Exactly what Paul told us to do in Ephesians 5, one: Be imitators of God. He's not saying just be a mimic, be a clown. He's saying listen to what God says. And God will speak primarily to us through His written word. I've said it before. If, you're, if, if you don't have a lot of time for Bible study, then you need to, to bury yourself from Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through the end of Jude. That's where your primary study is should be because that's the epistles that are written to the church to tell us how to live our lives. Acts tells us what the first century church acted like and what our churches ought to be. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us how Jesus lived. But once you're born again, that's, that's good. I'm not saying that, that you don't need to go back and read the Gospels, but if you're desperate, get in the epistles. That's where you find your authority. That's where you find out how you're supposed to act. Amen? Now, can we really do this? Well, let me give you, this is a negative um, um, example, but let me show you something. Acts, or Isaiah 14. This is talking about Lucifer. Remember, Lucifer was around when Jesus created the universe, or at least there's indications he was. He watched Jesus say, Light be, and the universe came into existence. He's watched Jesus speak and see things manifest. So when he decides that he's going to, foolishly, that he's going to exalt his throne above God's throne, what does he do? He imitates God. Verse 13, For you have said in your heart, this is talking about Lucifer, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He did this out of His own will. That's the reason it was considered sin. That's the reason He fell. If we start declaring stuff out of our own will, that's our flesh. But when we have the Word on it, when we have the Holy Spirit witness that, con- that is confirmed by the Word, Because your witness always has to be confirmed by the Word. The Word word is preeminent over anything I feel God leading me to do. If I can't go to the Scriptures and, and, and justify it through the written Word, just set it aside. It's not God. And keep in mind, this same Lucifer, Satan, will come in as an angel of light. Which means what? It means he looks good. He sounds good. It sounds like it really, this, this, this could be God. But there will always be a catch to it. There will always be something that tells you, hmm, there's a, there's a violation of the word somewhere in here. And if you're listening to God, and the more words you get, the more familiar with the words you get, the more obvious those things become. Amen? It's the word that keeps us straight. Now, how do I walk this out? The major way that I do this is I look at the incarnation. Now, in in the New Testament, primarily in Paul's writings, because Paul uses this phrase, um, we use this phrase, you know, Jesus is in my heart. Nothing wrong with it. It's a true statement. You know how many times it occurs in the Bible? And it's a very common phrase amongst Christians. Use one time in Ephesians, one time, and yet we all use it. There's also the the phrase, uh, Christ is in me. That one occurs five different times. But there is another little phrase, in Christ, or some form of in Christ. That one occurs over 150 times in the New Testament. Paul's trying to get something across to us when he uses that phrase 150 times in his letters. What does it mean? It, it, our, our best picture of that is the incarnation. First Timothy 2.5. And you're going to have to hang with me here, because if you don't listen carefully, you're going to think I said something that I didn't say. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man... Christ Jesus. Paul identifies Christ Jesus as a man. When the incarnation happened, when when Gabriel came before Mary, and he said, Mary, you're chosen of God. And God wants to impregnate you with the Messiah. And Mary said, let it be according to your word. Literally what happened at that moment, the second person of the Godhead, God... God produced, I don't know exactly how he did it, probably just he made it, but he produced a sperm cell and it united with the egg that, that Mary had in her own body because she was the physical mother of Jesus. God didn't create a complete whole body for Jesus like he did out of Adam. He used part of his already creation in Mary. It's reason, reason, and I know it's a, Big thing on the left today that, you know, we have this patriarchy and the reason a lot of lefties will reject the Bible is it's patriarchal from beginning to end. The reason it's patriarchal is God chose to, to, uh, to declare that this nature of sin was passed down from father through father through father through father. does not mean that women aren't born with sin because even women have a father. Nobody's ever been born without a father except for Jesus. But it's the reason that the virgin birth is is an essential doctrine of the church. Because when when God created that sperm cell and it united with Mary's egg, and you got an ovum, you got a fertilized egg, one cell, the second person of the Godhead left heaven and, and embodied that cell. Now, I have no idea how that works. But Timothy, right here, says that he speaks of the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus, the, the physical, that physical body, God united himself with that body to where God identifies himself as a man. A physical human being. He joined himself to humanity. He became one with humanity. Not fallen humanity, but innocent humanity, just like Adam was. Amen? When he tells us that we are in Christ, what he is telling us is, I want, in the same way that I united myself with humanity and became a man... I have united your, your spirit with divinity so that you we don't become god this is what I'm saying don't misunderstand me but we become one with god that's why John can say in John 1 John 4 that as Jesus is so are we in this earth why Because I am one with Him. I am united with the divinity of Jesus, the divinity of Christ. And it it is amazing. It's beyond my belief. First of all, I don't understand how how God has to be unlimited, and yet man is limited, and yet God united with humanity. Now, if you can explain that one to me, boy, you're something, because I've tried to figure that one out for a lot of years. And it's the same way, how can I, who have flesh or or sin tied up and and deeply rooted in my physical body, how can my spirit become one with divinity? But if you could peel away this flesh, if you could see with, with, with the eyes of your spirit and look at the real me, the spirit on the inside, you wouldn't be able to tell where I start and Jesus ends. We are so united and so mixed that we look like one person. That's why when, when Peter says, You are to, he says, the, the, the devil goes about as a roaring lion. You are to resist him and he will flee from you. It doesn't say he flees from Jesus, it says he flees from you. Why would he flee from me? I'm just a bug. Because when he looks at me, I look just like Jesus because he doesn't look at my flesh, he sees the real spirit on the inside. And he says, I'm not sure who's talking to me right now. Is that Jesus or is that John? But I've been whipped by Jesus, so I ain't taking any chances. That's why it works. And when we make the kingdom of God our treasure and seek it before everything, what he's saying is, you will become Uh, uh, You won't become, but you will come to realize how united with Christ you are. And in that uniting, you will begin to walk about. Remember, kingdom meant to walk about in authority and power. Just like you were the king. Well, brother, I can do that. Yeah, because you have his name. You have his anointing. You have everything Jesus ever had. He said, the kingdom is yours, my little children. I've given you my name. I've given you my spirit. What else do you need? Stand up and walk around like you really mean something. Amen? In the same way that Jesus became a man and identified with humanity, we have become one with Jesus and we identify ourselves as Christ. That's where communion comes in. Do you remember Jesus said... Do this, but take communion, take the bread and the wine. Do this in remembrance of me. Not remembrance of who I was, not remembrance of who I'm going to be, but remembrance of me, present tense, who he is right now, sitting, seated on the throne, and I'm seated with him. I need to realize that that the blood and the bread are mine. Remember, we said earlier, when and in, in, I don't remember which Old Testament book it is, but after the, the Passover, the very first Passover, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, there were no weak or infirm among them. Well, I've heard some unbelieving believers say, well, that's because they left all the weak ones behind because they know they just slow them down. No. It's because the uh, unleavened bread and, and the, the lamb that they consumed was so empowered and so imbued with power that they got healed en masse. That was just a type of the real Jesus. That was a picture of what the real Jesus was going to do down the road. And millions of people got healed over it. How much more will will the real Jesus, His blood and His body, do for us? But it only does it if we recognize it. Let me read a couple of scriptures 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28 and 29. This is Paul describing the, the, the events that, he, that, the, that Jesus showed him about communion. This is the, we always used to look at it as the negative side, or I did. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. It says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, notice, not discerning the Lord's body. I see three ways we don't discern the Lord's body. One, I don't realize that I am united with Him. I am the body of Christ, or I'm, I'm, I'm part of the body of Christ. The church in the earth today as a whole, is the body of Christ. That's why we're not the bride of Christ. I used to get really concerned because, you know, when I think of a bride, I think of a white dress, and I don't look good in a white dress. Take the most beautiful bridal dress in the world, you put it on me and you're going to laugh. Well, I'm not the bride of Christ. Not yet. Because the bride of Christ will consist of the entire, entire church from the very first Christian that got saved to the very last Christian that got saved. And a lot of the church is gone. They're in heaven. So what am I? I'm the body of Christ. The believers present in the earth today make up His body, just like He had a physical body in the earth, just one man in Galilee. He can only minister to a few hundred people, a few thousand people at a time. We are His body collectively every believer in the earth makes up his body all the way from the, the head down amen so we we identify thank God it makes my ego better i identify as a man the man jesus i am part of his body now no ladies that means you know you have to identify as a man but you don't have any problem putting blue jeans on so shouldn't be that hard But notice, that's one way. We we don't discern ourselves as being united and my own flesh is part of that body and just as valuable as Jesus' body was, my body is today. But I also don't discern the Lord's body, the church as a whole. How many times, and I'm not going to throw it at you, I'm going to throw it at me and throw it at all of us because it's collective guilt. How many times have we said, well, yeah, but you know, that, that church down there, they're just full of sin. They don't preach anything. They're reprobates. Be careful. Be very careful. Because that church only has to have one believer in it. And they are still anointed. One believer in a, in a body of 10,000 that make up a local church. One believer will bring the anointing into that service. And we need to be careful. God did not call us, He did not commission us as Christians to to preach correction to the body of Christ. He called us to preach the good news to the lost. Well, who in the world corrects the body of Christ? The individual pastors. That's why you ought to pray for me. So I'll hear God's voice. If we need correction, He'll usually start with me. Believe me, I've come in here more than once with my toes bloody. He'll 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 anoint apostles and prophets. There are still prophets in the land, and they'll go to occasionally some place and they'll tell, "You're wrong here. This needs to be corrected." But if they're in order, they'll usually go to the pastor and the leadership and say, "This needs to be done. This needs to be corrected." And you're wise if you know you need to let them show you in the Word. Don't just listen to. They may have just you know they they are also prone to having too much pizza on there or too many pepperonis on their pizza. Sometimes that's it. But we need to discern the Lord's body if it's not. When it says that we, we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, it's not talking about how you take it, what your theology is, whether you believe in transubstantiation or don't believe in transubstantiation, whether you believe it should be unleavened bread or leavened bread. And believe me, I've seen small wars fought over leavened versus unleavened. It amazes me that people want to argue over what kind of bread you have. You know, Gina and I, one, one year we were heading to Tulsa, and we were listening to a, this was back when, I'll tell you how long ago, there was a cassette tape in the tape player in our car. And we were listening to something, and, and he was teaching on taking communion, and all we had in the car were, were pretzels and root beer. We took communion with pretzels and root beer. And it meant just as much as using matzah and grape juice. It's what you discern, not the physical elements. But notice, it said we must, a man must examine himself. The whole key to this is live an examined life. Now, you have to be careful there sometimes. You don't want to examine your life to the point where you just live in condemnation. All you ever see is evil. I've had people tell me when when you lead, read through um, the account, Paul's account in Corinthians about the um, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and it talks about discerning of spirits. I've had people tell me, "Oh, I've got the gift of discernment, and I can I can discern that there are evil spirits here," and the people that have always told me they have the gift of discernment. First of all, there is no gift of discernment. There's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that, help, that allows people in a moment to discern spiritual things. But if all you ever see is evil spirits, then you are wrong. You don't have that gift. You've just eaten too much pepperoni. Because when, you, when God opens your eyes to the spirit realm, you might see evil spirits, but you're going to see angels because there are never anywhere in the entire planet that evil spirits will be present that angels aren't also present. So if you're only seeing one side of the coin, you're just being a little judgmental. Examine it, judge it, put it under the blood. And then the the second scripture, 1 John 1, 7 through 10. This is when we examine our life and we find things that are wanting. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, that's talking about the sin nature. It's singular. The nature of sin in your flesh. We deceive ourselves. This is what the the big move in the United States right now in a lot of churches is that they will declare that there really is nothing. Sin is just a social construct imparted to the world by the evil patriarchy. If you, don't want to, if you don't understand what that means, count yourself very fortunate. But we do have the nature of sin in our flesh. We cannot say that we have no sin. It says we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, plural, when we allow that sin nature to manifest itself and we do the, an act of sin, then he says we must confess it and if we do, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where most Christians fall down, they, they very quickly will agree that Jesus' blood will forgive them, but cleanse them? Oh, no, 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 no. It's going to take me a few months of beating myself, feeling guilty. And, and the church will usually cooperate. That sinner. Usually when it's when they're really bad, it's it's not just sinner, it's sinner. We get, you know, we gotta pronounce it right. That means they've done something really bad. Well, if you missed the mark, you have done a sin. And we do them, we have them plural. They're manifestations of our sin nature. All we got to do is run to Jesus, put it under the blood, and He'll forgive us and He will cleanse us. It's as if we had never sinned. The book of Zechariah, read it. It talks about the high priest um, Jacob. It says he came before the Lord. Remember, God says, I cannot dwell with sin. And yet Zechariah says that Jacob, the high priest, or not Jacob, Joshua, the high priest, walked into the throne room of God with filth. That's talking about manure on his robes. He was the high priest. He had to be spotless. And he came in covered in manure. And the father said, yep, you're a sinner. And he just evaporated. No, the father looked at him. He said, bring him clean robes. Bring him a clean turban. The Father cleaned him up. When Paul tells us in Hebrews, come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and, and mercy in time, when you are in time of need. I've said it before. Check your pulse. If your heart's beating, you're in a time of need. Get before the throne. Put, it, put everything under the blood and let him cleanse you. When you sin, is not a time to run from God. It's a time to run to God. That's what this communion is for. Communion is all about us recognizing that not only did Jesus shed His blood for us, that's that's the, the third way that we don't discern the Lord's body. We are big on the blood, but we also have to come to the realization that He broke His body for us. Now, he bled when his body was broken. But his body was broken specifically, on purpose. It wasn't just a byproduct of having his blood shed. It wasn't like God said, well, you know, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to shed some blood here, so I'm going to have to have him be whipped and do all this so he can shed the blood. No, God said, we're going to do this two ways. We're going to bring healing to your flesh by breaking His body. And as we break His body, His blood is going to be shed. The breaking of the body brings health to our physical body. The shedding of the blood brings forgiveness for our sins. The whole reason we can have health in our body is because our sins are forgiven. Remember, everything that, that we will have in the millennium and in, in the ages to come, when we have our resurrected body, we get a type of that today. We get a taste of that today. I don't have a resurrected body. My body is mortal. It's subject to death. If I live long enough, I will die. If Jesus doesn't come back, I will die. We all will. And the amazing thing is, when death comes, we're all surprised. How did He get here so fast? Because I can tell you, the 67 years I've been on this planet have gone by in the blink of an eye. His body was broken for me. It's personal. We have to discern the Lord's body, if we discern, it's the reason he said, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, not discerning the, the, the body, drinks judgment. When I just take this as a piece of bread, just something to do, then I am saying, I'm not worthy, I need to be judged. I'm bringing that. But when I look at this bread and I say, this bread represents his body, which was broken for me and i make it personal then i'm partaking in a worthy manner and healing is mine whether i can whether it manifests itself or not doesn't matter that's not my that's not my responsibility my responsibility is to say jesus your body was broken and it was broken for me And when I partake of this bread, it represents me partaking of your broken body and I am healed because of what you did. And it's up to Jesus to bring the healing. Take and eat. In the very same way, when his body was broken, his body shed blood. He bled. He started bleeding the night before when the guards of the Pharisees beat him when the guards the roman guards whipped him they thrust a a thorn of or crown of thorns on his head and then at the end they nailed him to the cross and at the very end after he was his body was dead he gave up his spirit they took a spear and thrust it into his side and blood and water came out all of that was done so that I could stand before God as if I have never sinned ever. It's all under the blood. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash them white as snow. It's amazing. You take real blood or even grape juice, you spill it on a garment, you spill it on leather, it's going to stain. And you are going to be hard pressed to get that stain out. if you um, spill juice on a garment and you decided you're going to clean it with blood, you will make the stain worse. That's exactly what the blood of bulls and goats did. It made your sin stand out. You recognize sin in your life. But the blood of Jesus has miraculous powers. You have Your sin stains you, but His blood will make it white as snow it will totally cleanse you renew you so i've said before i was born again at a point in time but my redemption is eternal i am it is t- in, in in heaven it's as if i got born 1 second ago it's brand new because they don't have time i'm in a consistent constant state of new birth and rebirth and cleansing through the blood of jesus Oh, as we take this, see yourself cleansed. In Jesus' name, take a drink. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana. Or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.